I'm Emily. And I'm Kay. And this is Second Lead Syndrome. A podcast homage to our K-pop culture side pieces. Welcome, everyone, to our second installment of an ongoing series in the podcast, On the Hustle. And again, this is a series in which uh, the episodes we cover of the BTS show, American Hustle Life, we are going to do recaps and really deep dive analysis into each and every episode of this particular variety series from 2014. So we last week talked about episode one, and episode one ended with BTS meeting Coolio, who was their first sort of primary instructor uh, to give them various challenges. And um, the concepts that we talked about in the last episode had to do with Coolio asking V... um, about hip-hop and V saying turn up Um, and we talked about this concept of indexicality um, in relation to that as well as the issue of toxic masculinity and the way that the show is structured and its conceptualization revolves partly around this model of learning through kind of toxic masculinity rituals. So we see this also at the opening of episode two, where as punishment for this uh, sort of indexicality wire crossing between V and Coolio, uh, that V sort of gets punished for his uh, lack of understanding of like indexicality or, well, actually he just, he gets punished for presuming that he understands the indexicality of turned up. Uh, and he has to do push-ups, which again goes back to this sort of toxic, toxic masculinity like boot camp model of like you have to get punished f- through uh, physical physical punishment um, for whatever missteps you've made against authority. Um, but moving on from that, uh, Coolio then opens with giving them Uh, challenges of three different questions about hip-hop history. So, Kay, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what those questions were and maybe even give away the answers. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, so the questions that Coolio posed seem kind of random if you're not familiar with the history of hip-hop. So the first question is, what happened to two live crew? Which is kind of a very broad question. A lot of things happened to them, I'm sure. But there's one thing in particular that Coolio is asking about. Um, Who was the first rapper to rap in his natural speaking voice? And third, where did Public Enemy draw their musical inspiration from? Uh, So the answers to these questions, they're actually like tied into this much deeper history of how hip-hop is in conversation with all kinds of other societal things that are happening um, at the time, and also how hip-hop contributes to or shapes society. The first question um, about Two Live Crew 
is I think particularly interesting in this in this respect. Um, so Two Live Crew actually um, was the first hip hop group to be censored for their use of um, vulgarity, and this is really important not only to hip hop but also to um, conversations about entertainment and about race in America um, in the nineties. I think this is I think this is really important to hip hop because um, hip hop has always been this sort of um, invasive like force that breaks apart expectations and assumptions in the American music industry. Part of that breaking apart of assumptions is that a majority of hip hop consumers since hip hop became commercialized have been white. Um, But there was at the same time that hip hop was really burgeoning as a key player in the music industry, um, a white sense of panic around hip hop and like, what are these lyrics going to do to our youth? Like, what is it going to make them think and think about? And what are going to be the real world consequences? Like, what are people going to do because they're hearing these lyrics? And of course, you know, there are a lot of um, academic debates about this, but in the public sphere, a lot of white folks were like, well, we need to censor this and we need to put a label on this so that parents can know this is what their their kids are listening to or this is the kind of the kinds of encounters that they're having. So trying to determine what people think about the music without actually engaging the content of the music. What else would you add to that? Well, part of what I find interesting about this question as well particularly in relation to him posing it to a group like BTS, is actually, if you look at um, even clothing that a lot of K-pop artists wear, many of them actually have clothes that harken back to the label that was created because of this historical moment in hip-hop. So you see those parental advisory explicit lyrics And it's replicated on a shirt or a hat. And I can't count the number of K-pop artists that I've seen wearing this particular label um, as it has been reproduced on clothing. And you see it. it's, It's ubiquitous. And yet, how many of them do actually understand that it comes from that? Uh... Or what it's actually referencing. And so again, it goes back to this thing of like, um, I guess this question of, you know, using the aesthetics without understanding context, right? There's there's this way in which many times, and I mean, this gets into, you know, the politics of appropriation and all those kinds of things, but um, this idea that you can you can put forth all the appearance or all the kind of aesthetic trappings of something, but what else is is required or, um, yeah, sort of how much of adopting the aesthetics is also a, a decontextualization or 
what does it mean for people to not understand that and still, you know, wear the wear this thing or, you know, um, I think that's the thing is like this question of how much do you like understand the history that you're connected to, um, which I think all of these questions bring up in in a much broader way. But that's just one example that I can immediately think of where that's directly relevant to K-pop and fashion. Um, yeah, but maybe you can unpack the, the second question about the natural speaking voice. I actually was a little confused by this question um, when Khalil asked it, um, because there's a, a lot of ways to like think about that and like what does a natural speaking voice actually mean? This question like forces you to think about the way that hip hop has not always been the way that it is now, basically. And you have to cast your mind back to the beginnings of hip hop when um, rapping was emceeing a party. So your job as a rapper is to keep people dancing and keep people moving. And that requires a different um, like vocal tone and different cadence than normal speaking does. So that's why you have that like like rapper's delight sounds so different from like anything that Jay-Z does, right? Like, yeah, the fact that it started off in this very different way is important to remember in in looking at how it's changed over time. So like for Coolio to say like, this is where I draw the line is also a very interesting like move to say this is when like rappers started using a natural speaking voice, even though rapping itself is not natural speaking, quote unquote, um, it's a very constructed way of, you know, vocalizing. But this is what's, you know, perceived as being like natural or not using like a funny or put on voice, I guess. Mm, yeah. And I think what's what's interesting, too, is like thinking about how what a kind of hip hop dialect or a like hip hop vocalization uh, what different time periods like connote an idea of hip hop vocalization and what happens in K-pop where this notion of hip hop vocalization gets transposed onto Korean speakers and what what's sort of happening there in terms of um, vocalization, which I think is a very interesting question to think about. And then I think the last question that Coolio poses is probably the the juiciest but then also like the least like unfortunately the least unpacked question um which is public enemy's influences <laughs> so public enemy is like well known as being influenced by black nationalism and i think that there's also a sort of um moral panic or white moral panic surrounding their rise in the U.S. as well, because, um, you know, drawing on black nationalism and groups like the Black Panther Party um, seems to many white people to be an expression of, like, militant race-based outrage. And Public Enemy was always very explicit that they were, like, that it was, like, fight the power but there's not a whole lot of what white folks typically 
like to hear, such as we are the world, everyone come together. You know, it's not um, a message of reconciliation, which makes white folks uncomfortable, but especially in the 90s, which are, you know, marked by race riots in Los Angeles, which is a whole other thing that, like, one would think that BTS would encounter while they're in Los Angeles, um, but didn't seem to come up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we will continue. I mean, we've flagged it before in the previous episode of kind of, yeah, these histories of police brutality um, and race riots in that particular area of of America as being, um, yeah, an epicenter historically for these kinds of um, these kinds of issues. Um, and yeah, I think we'll continue to talk about it in future episodes as well. Maybe give you guys more of a primer on on that history um, moving forward. But we just wanted to flag it again as this moment of, um, you know, Public Enemy is a, a, a New York-based crew. Um, but that being said, thinking about, like, where they are located as another sort of crucial, um, yeah, crucial place that means a lot for those histories, um, I think is something that, like, you cannot ignore, and yet they completely ignore in the show. Yeah, definitely. And again, this goes back to like how hip hop was born and how it's changed over time. Hip hop was born in New York. Like it, it is a quintessentially New York form that you know took root in other places like LA um, for you know various reasons. And it's also important to remember that hip hop was not always explicitly political, right? Even though. I and many others would argue that um, that rapping, you know, at parties is political in some way. Right. And the way that um, that, you know, youth literally take over the mic and get to express themselves and their truths like that is political. But for a group like Public Enemy to come out and make records and distribute them widely that say things like fight the power that's an explicitly political message that makes listeners question what are the structures that influence my life and how can I possibly change them? Like that's quite threatening and that was something, um, I mean, it's threatening to some people and liberating to many people, um, but that's something that hip hop wasn't designed necessarily to do and that it didn't do from the beginning. Um, and even now, I think there's a lot of tension between groups or performers who are explicitly political and those who are not explicitly political. And I think that's why it was a good question for Coolio to ask them. But I just wish that they had had more of a discussion about that, not only for BTS, but for the viewers themselves. Because I think the only discussion you have of it is the answer so Jin just says like oh it's from the Black Panther Party and the civil unrest and injustice that black people felt in America and then that's like the end of the discussion yeah it's like an answer from a textbook which doesn't give you any sense of like what were the actual experiences of people at the time like what were people thinking and feeling um you know in different parts of society and how do they respond to this um, and I also think that there's a possible reflection for BTS because Public Enemy was hugely successful and hugely influential um, commercially as well as 
politically. And I think that, you know, if I were in charge of the show, I would ask BTS, like, what is the lesson that you draw from Public Enemy? What kinds of things might you do in your music that might um, either echo or speak back to the kind of work that they did? Yeah, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right about the fact that they just sort of looked up the answer and then gave it from a from a sort of textbook because even in like the performance that Jin and Suga develop in relation to the song, Coolio's critique of it is like, you guys aren't putting 100% into this. Like there's, and there's this way in which they're not able in that particular moment. And again, we've talked about how like later on when we get to the episodes with Warren G, where there's finally this moment where BTS kind of starts to put their personal experiences into the performance. Um, But at this particular moment, it's like Jin's just rattling off like, oh, is the Black Panthers in struggle? And they're just saying fight the power and they're going through the motions without having any kind of experiential connection or emotional investment in the content and, and, and that the aesthetics and the content and the emotion and the experience aren't coming together. And Coolio, that's like very evident to Coolio when he sees them performing in the same way that someone is like wearing a parental advisory shirt and then like, yeah, you can wear all the clothing, but whether or not like you connect to that inside or you understand like why you're wearing this, um, is, is a whole nother story. So I think that that was this, again, you know, we keep on pointing out these moments, but I think this is a really crucial one where they could have, yeah, had a much more uh, explicit conversation about hip hop history, about social context, and neither the audience nor BTS gets any of that context really laid out for them in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah, and there's like no connection between these different Um, questions that makes the answers seem like anything more than like random trivia or like fun facts. And actually, like they're really critically important, not only to knowing the history of hip hop, but also to BTS potentially as performers. Um, So, yeah, so it's really both interesting and kind of disappointing to see like these big juicy things come up and then not be fully engaged. Yeah, I think that's just a theme of these recaps, though, is <laughs> like um, I know on Drama Beans, they talk about this with um, I can't remember which drama it was. I feel like it was an Eamon Ho drama. I think it, maybe it was personal taste. And in one of their recaps, they said something about how they almost hated the drama because it was like good, but there was so much they could have done and as you're watching it, it's like this fly in your ointment that just keeps buzzing around as you're watching where you see so many opportunities where things could have been better that you almost start to like hate the show because you see all of these missed potentials. And that isn't to say that, again, like we've talked about this before, you know, we love BTS, but uh, but yeah, this show is kind of the, the, like that fly keeps buzzing around the ointment. <laughs> and I think that that's like an important way to like think about and engage with media that you enjoy, right? To think about what's missing here and what could have been done better. Um, and if you don't know, like if 
if you are an audience member who doesn't have a background in hip hop and you're watching the show and enjoying it, like that's fine. And just also know that there is like a whole lot more depth and richness that would be possible. Um, and it's I think it's, you know, worth a Google. It's worth a check on Wikipedia um, to see what you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we're here to give you some of that <laughs> and we'll put links to different things that, you know, you may find useful. Um, but yeah, I do sort of think like there are all these opportunities where people can be learning a lot from watching the show and we're just trying to, I think, open the door a little bit wider because there were these moments where they opened the door just to crack and if you were really, really curious, you might go down that rabbit hole. But we're just like, we want to push you straight in. <laughs> I was going to say, too, that especially for American audience members, um, I think it's easy to say this is your history, too. And this, all of this shapes the media that you consume now. Um, you know, everything from whether or not commercial music is explicitly political to whether there's a parental advisory label on the CD you just bought, which you're probably not buying CDs anymore. You're probably streaming and that's a whole other conversation. Um, but just to to be aware that this history is shaping the world around you and how you engage with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, let's just close this section of the conversation by talking about this question of, and I think we've already alluded to this to a certain degree, but what are the stakes of BTS knowing or not knowing these histories? And what are the stakes for the viewers? So I think, you know, you've mentioned this a little bit that like, yeah, for those people watching, you're yeah, like there's this whole way in which your own history um, could potentially be, uh, I don't know, enlightened or something. But yeah, that that question I think we need to unpack before we kind of close this section of the of the episode recap. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the for BTS the stakes in understanding this history have everything to do with like the kind of music that they make going forward and how other people can or cannot engage with it. Um, and I think we'll talk about this more in a second, but because hip hop is always in conversation with itself um, and it often, you know, whether it's in lyrics or in samples, like musical samples, um, refers back to previous events, sometimes as a way of saying, um, this is what I'm drawing from or what I'm inspired by. And sometimes it's a way of saying, now I'm doing something entirely different from this or this thing was wrong and now I'm going to correct it. Um, and so to be, you know, full participants in hip hop, you have to know what those references are and then you have to be able to make them yourself. So, you know, for BTS to be able to draw on that history could be really important to them. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like that's one of the interesting things about 
even a song like Fight the Power. So if you go to Who Sampled Who, which is, if you don't know about that site, check it out. Uh, It basically tells you for many, many, many songs, hip-hop and otherwise, um, which songs a, a given song has sampled um, but also like what songs have sampled a given song as well. So it's like you can go to a page that has a song and you can see all the songs that it sampled or um, it will also show like what songs have sampled that song that you're looking at on that given page. So it's a great website for figuring that stuff out. It's not entirely comprehensive. For example, I have found that they don't always have K-pop songs on there. And sometimes I've wanted to find out samples and haven't been able to find them on Who Sample To. Uh, And I think it is crowdsourced. So if anyone does recognize samples for different K-pop songs, I highly encourage you to go on there and contribute because I wish I knew more of them. Um, I think, for example, I was looking up Supreme Team and they like to sample a lot of like 70s, 80s soul. Um... And yeah, I actually discovered this really awesome uh, Bobby Womack sample that they did that was just incredible. So anyway, that's just (laughs) one example. Um, But yeah, this this idea of sampling is it it functions in so many different ways. And that's like a whole nother conversation about hip hop that we could, you know, have in the future. Um, But yeah, I find it interesting, for example, to go back to our conversation about um, Shaka Zulu and the Zulu Nation um, from the last episode, it's interesting. Actually, when I was looking up Fight the Power, I believe it also samples Africa Bombada's Planet Rock. And again, Public Enemy was also very much drawing on inspirations about like Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism. They reference. Nelson Mandela in some of their lyrics. So there's this way in which there's also this broader history, not just of, you know, race relations or like racial experiences in America, but that there was this larger kind of global interconnectivity that artists like Public Enemy were sort of reaching out towards as well. Um, you know, and, and and that particular historical moment when public enemy was prominent was a time when, you know, apartheid uh, was about to, to fall or had fallen in, you know, um, in South Africa. So there's these ways in which, you know, it isn't just about or confined to America that often hip hop is speaking to larger global discourses at the same time, too. Yeah. And I think that that's also an important way for us to think about how, um you know, especially as we're like coming off of a summer where like literal Nazis popped out of the woodwork, right? To think about these like global networks of um, like white supremacy and like really scary stuff and how hip hop provides like this um, opposing network for people to think about um, and talk about race in ways that are not destructive, right? that ultimately can bring people together. Yeah, and I think you can see that also in sort of the hip-hop artistic landscape as well. You know, we went through a period prior to the current moment that we're in 
where it's not like there weren't more explicit kind of political instances, but you kind of have this space um, in between kind of conscious hip hop, uh, say, and then you have, and obviously some of those artists from that time period are still active, but you have this gap between then and kind of now where you're getting a kind of Kendrick Lamar, you're getting, um, you know, this kind of resurgence of conscious hip hop. Um, And I'm not just coming up with that myself. I am like borrowing from other conversations that I've heard. I mean, one example is the podcast um, Politically Reactive, where uh, W. Kamal Bell and Hari Kondabolu talk to Jasiri X, who's a conscious hip hop artist, and the ways in which we're in a particular political moment that is necessitating, I think, um, and, and, and the that the zeitgeist uh, is kind of calling for a more mainstreaming of conscious hip hop again. Thanks for listening to Second Lead Syndrome. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love to have your support so that we can post all our episodes online and keep them available. We've got some great thank yous like exclusive content on our website and shout outs in our episode credits. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash second lead syndrome. That's 2ND lead syndrome. And thanks again for listening. Connect with us on Twitter at Second Lead, that's 2ND Lead, or email us at Second Lead Syndrome, 2ND Lead Syndrome at gmail.com. You can find additional content and links to full audio and video mentioned on Second Lead Syndrome at secondleadsyndrome.wordpress.com. Our theme was composed by Kevin Vitz Wong. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com slash prosthetica. On the next episode of Second Lead Syndrome. So you're figuring out what is the relationship that I have with this person in general? And also, what does this particular interaction need to do for me? And then what kind of um, words and, and moves do I need to make to hold on to this position?